We want to welcome you back to Restore Gospel Podcast. And just as an intro, I want to um, invite you to take a little detour with us for the next couple of broadcasts. Uh, we had something come uh, across our desk this past week, uh, a request for information on the book of the law and another claim of Joseph Smith uh, plagiarizing the Book of Mormon. Uh, we don't have time to always go through all of these things, but I had not heard of this one, although I guess it's a, a rather old claim. I reached out to a friend who has a blog, a Matt Lorkey of bookofmormonism.com. We'll have links to that, but we're going to look at a number of things. Number one, what it means to meditate on the Word, uh, how important it is to renew our mind, important to not be a lazy learner. Uh, we're going to see some claims that were made, how the Book of Mormon has copied other books, and show how some of those claims or all of those claims really are not true and are not based in uh, correct assumptions. And so uh, based on some of the work Matt Lurkey recently did on his blog, we're going to talk about another side of this, and that is the Hebrew nature of the Book of Mormon and show examples of that. Not only does it bring out the meaning of the plain gospel, it shows why the Book of Mormon is indeed the standard for our day and age in knowing the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not our claim. We're not holding that up above other scripture. The Book of Mormon tells us exactly what it is itself. And so bringing those things out, you can choose to believe what you want to believe about the Book of Mormon but it does indeed contain the plain gospel of Jesus Christ, the standard, the doctrine that Christ says, do not add to, do not change until I return to you. We're commanded to take these things and integrate them into our life. Hope you enjoy these next couple of broadcasts. I think they're going to be uh, very powerful tools to share with people for witnessing and to show that in spite of all of the things you hear about Joseph Smith and these things he did, which really uh, we've overinflated and maybe under-exaggerated at times, but uh, just put this into your tool belt to ponder on the amazing, the amazing language and linguistics and story and the gospel and the nature of Jesus Christ revealed in his gospel for us through the mouths of angels, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, into metal, onto plates, through one man with interpreters being used, tools made from heaven so that we are not to be deceived. It's a crazy great gift and blessing. I hope you enjoy uh, these videos, and I hope they are a benefit to others in the future who are researching and wanting to know what the truth is. So may God bless all of us as we continue to seek him and walk each other home. Welcome back to Restore Gospel Podcast. I'm Mike Barrett. I'm Corey Stark. Here with, <laughs> here with Corey Stark, and we welcome you back. Uh, we're thankful for all of you that comment and reach out during the week. Uh, at this channel, we speak and teach about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and one of our favorite topics is the Book of Mormon, which was restored in these last days to give us a clear understanding of Jesus and who he is and his nature and saving power in a unadulterated, unpolluted um, book translated one time by man in these last days into our language. It's easy to, uh, Satan, of course, would love to attack the Book of Mormon, get people not to believe it. Sometimes he does that through uh, people coming across the traditions of Mormonism, and we've been doing a story, uh, a series on the Book of Mormon is not Mormonism, showing the difference between the gospel and the traditions of men in both the RLDS and LDS um, sides of the aisle in the church. Uh, recently, a friend of mine sent me a text, Corey and I a text, and asked if we knew anything about a book called The Late War. And I had not heard of this one, maybe because it's so old or it's an older uh, accusation. Um, but I told him I did not have any information on that. But he shared this article with me. I'm going to just make this full screen here. Here's 
Here's an article that was on a blog on the internet, and one of his friends had sent this to him wondering how this could be and, and if he knew how to explain why. Apparently, the Book of Mormon and this book called The Late War Between the United States and Great Britain, uh, that the Book of Mormon is being accused of plagiarizing and using um, this book. And on the surface, Corey, it looks a little daunting. Uh, they make the claim, basically, that... Um, there's a four-word phrase called a foregram that the coincidence of this appearing in two books is very rare. Um, and it says to, uh, they make a little comparison here. For instance, these foregrams are these copies of, of rare, supposedly rare words being in both books. You can see the Book of Mormon and the King James Bible, how, how often that uh, these things appear in the both books. And then we see this book with the late war quite some time and then they said they randomly chose a book called pride and prejudice and you can see how little um words are shared between the two books and you can read this article and get more of the the overview there but first of all the king james bible is quoted quite a bit in the book of mormon so that's not weird the late war was actually said or its purpose was to be written after the style of the king james bible to get people and Corey's going to talk on this to get people to uh, read their scriptures. And so some of that language might be similar. But uh, I told my friend that I did not have any information, but I reached out to a man named Matt Lorkey who has a who has a YouTube blog called Book of Mormonism. And he actually started looking this over and he actually ended up writing a very good article that kind of talks about this claim. And and he he went in and he researched these words that appear in both books and he went into quite detail there's actually a pdf on here i think of uh, 21 pages where he goes over each claim that they make and shows how their data is off and their presumptions off that these phrases and things appeared in many books of the time period and so if you're writing a book and you're using the language number one of trying to sound like the bible and you're writing with language that's popular of the day, then that language is going to appear both sides. So there's ways to go about um, thinking about a claim when you see this. But you see, like, for example, they'll just say, the land most plentiful, yielding gold and silver in all manner of creatures which are used for food, and the huge mammoth that once moved on the borders, it is more wonderful than the elephant. Now, this is the late war writing. And then they go to the Book of Mormon, the land exceeding rich, of gold and of silver and all manner of animals which were useful for the food of man, curlums and cumans, and more especially the elephants. So you can see there's some similar things here, and it goes on and shows many examples of these things. We're going to talk today, Corey, about not only is it not an anomaly to have the same English words there, but even more importantly, I think, and more satisfying to my brain, is the Hebrew nature of the Book of Mormon that is not found in other literature. And I'm going to turn it over to you and let you take it from here. I know you're going to share your screen and take us through some things. So, Corey, welcome. Thank you, sir. And that's a great overview and great, really, intro to this. Uh, I'm going to share my screen. Uh, it always takes me a second to do this. Stand by. Um, <clears throat> and Corey and I both been under the weather um, so if our voices are a little off this morning we apologize but uh, hopefully our faces the beauty there will make up for the weak voices so <laughs> that's always always the beauty right all mm -hmm. right so here's uh let's see that's not the one i want to share sorry let me try it again um you sure oh uh, maybe that is maybe it'll Late work more yeah yeah okay um stand by here so this is the late war and i'm gonna just go into a little bit of detail on things that mike has already shared um this <clears throat> really is a good setup for the authenticity of the book of mormon and so the late war it was written by a guy named um oh grant uh or gilbert hunt gilbert j hunt and it was written in 1812 so the premise is that this book was available before Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon, and therefore he he plagiarized from it, or he was influenced by it. I think that's the, the word they use. Um, one of the, and this is actually what the author of the late war, which is found at wordtree.org, 
they make this statement that this heavily influenced his writing of the Book of Mormon. So that's the claim. Now, one of the things we'll find is that there are repeated phrases in the late war in the Book of Mormon, mostly in the history chapters. Um, in the late war, they present a chiasm. And then from the, those findings, basically, they, they conclude that the Book of Mormon was, was plagiarizing the, the late war. Um, one of the things I'd like to point out up front is that the book title is more than the late war. The, the author of the website doesn't ever point this out, but I, I underlined it in red here. And what it is, is the late war between the United States and Great Britain from June 1812 to February 1815, written in the ancient historical style. So <clears throat> this is the whole title. It's not just the late war. And <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> what is this ancient historical style? It's, it's the style of the Bible. It was intended to mimic the, the writing of the Bible. And, and how does it do that? Well, let's look at a couple of these things. You pointed this out. I'm not going to go through here, but there are words in color that are similar, not always the same, but similar from the late war to the Book of Mormon. We see weapons of war. We see, you know, the month, day, year. We see 2,000 men, phrases like this. And we, we see a lot of references. I think the majority of the references are simply when they name out the day in the month or the day in the month and the year, like the fourth day and the seventh month, uh, the 26th day of the ninth month. And they find similar phrases in the Book of Mormon. From, from those things, they find a, you know, they make an accusation of plagiarism. Um, so when, when we study this, it's interesting because they, they conclude that the Book of Mormon was plagiarizing, but we need to look at the Bible first. And here's what I found. And this, I could go deeper, but I just wanted to take a sampling. I, I took some of these phrases. They're on the left. <clears throat> these are some of the accusations that are found in the, the author's, you know, allegations here. Um, in the month of, in the day, month, year, and it came to pass, gold, silver, weapons of war, the people of, all manner of, were prepared, 2,000 men. And you can see these exist in this on the right. Well, <clears throat> I'm sorry, <clears throat> cold, still lingering. So from the Bible, I started searching, and th these are all King James references. Well, 2,000 men, we get 2,000 men. We find that in the Bible. Uh, you can see them highlighted here from the book of Judges. This phrase, were prepared. We see these things existed in Nehemiah. All manner of, there's several places where we read all manner of in the King James, <clears throat> the people of, it's throughout the Bible, the people of, the children of Israel, the people of the land, the people of the land, the people of the East. Weapons of war, this appears many, many times in the Bible. Um, <clears throat> what the author of the Word Tree article wants you to assume is that because the Book of Mormon, for instance, mentions weapons of war, well, it was copied from the late war. It's not the case. I'm, I'm going to give you a different conclusion uh, when we're done with this, but weapons of war was in the Bible, as were all these phrases. Gold, silver, gold and silver uh, and brass, gold and silver and brass. Here's an interesting word. I'll, I'll mention this as well. <clears throat> the Book of Mormon mentions copper, and copper is never mentioned in the Bible. It's only meant as brass. Well, you can search this out. I won't give you the reference, but you can search scholars who say, it probably was copper that they were referring to in the Bible, but because the interpreters who wrote the King James didn't understand the nuance of the language, they interpreted everything as brass. If it was brass as an alloy, you know, between copper and something else. But this idea that copper existed is only in the Book of Mormon, but it's a true fact. So <clears throat> nevertheless, gold and silver, it occurs, and it came to pass 336 times in the King James Bible does the phrase, and it came to pass, occur. Um, we get in the day, month, year, you know, you find it throughout Genesis, the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, the 17th day of the month, um, the 600th year, the first month, the first day of the month. <clears throat> These things appear in the Bible. And again, uh, you know, this last one I'll give you, in the first month of, in the second year, for in the month of Abib, uh, we see these patterns throughout the Bible. 
And, and Cora, so, I just want to be clear: <clears throat> are those King James references or inspired version? Or um, all, all of them are King James references. Okay. I just didn't want to get into that. Well, uh, you know, yeah, nope. sure. Joseph changed the Bible to reflect the language or whatever. So, yeah. Nope. And and here's here's my point: is that the author of the the late war doesn't make any bones about the fact that he's copying from the style of the Bible, and so he's using biblical phrases, and so. Which, in fact, was the goal, to, to write exactly. it after the exactly. Bible. Right. <clears throat> I remember, too, that, um, sorry, <clears throat> the Book of Mormon was translated into the common language of the 1800s. You know, people spoke in thee and thou and, and whatnot. There wasn't anything unusual about the language. In that same day of the 1800s, people used these phrases. For instance, I just did a little search. Andrew Jackson in in his uh, fifth annual message, he's using the phrases. He doesn't say it was not until late August. He says late in the month of August. Uh, he said this was preventing me from proceeding on the mission until the month of October. He uses this same phrase. Um, I found the Mer Missouri Compromise in 1820. You can find this at archives.gov. This um, includes similar language the second monday of the month of june next okay so in the 1800s outside of the bible this language was common all right this and again he i think he has at least 20 references or don't quote me on that but something like that to just day month year similarities and so um <clears throat> you know again here's an example that you see this is an accusation he's making of plagiarism but you find this is the same language that everyone was using in the day. And we just don't live then. So we, we don't have the grasp of that. So Cor, real quick. So my, my friend, we were discussing and he's like, I wonder what, why did Joseph translate the book of Mormon, you know, into like the King's English. Uh, I, I think at the time that was uh, just how they wrote. And, you know, before TV and video and YouTube and all that, the, the family Bible was one of the most used books and one of the most used, you know, time spent when you had extra time was, was the family would often read the Bible together. You can still buy Bibles today that have like family history and marriages and places to write all of your history. And it was, it was like the center of the family, a very popular hub to gather around, you know, they would record their history and their marriages. And, and so people were used to hearing that language and reading in that language. And, you know, today, if it was translated, if you and I had that gift to translate, we may, use different language now, you know, according to writing, you know, instead of the 2000 stripling warriors, you know, maybe it would be, you know, the warriors, the buff warriors, you know, stacked, yeah. you know, but yeah. So I think that that's, that's an important just to realize that that was the, the language of the day and what would be most um, familiar to people that would read the book of Mormon at that time period would be to you have the same language as the Bible they were familiar with. Exactly. And, you know, if you need any convincing of that, just go to the um, the congressional records, you know, in the days that, since the nation was built and read the language of the politicians who were debating on the floor. It's all King's English. You know, there wasn't anything weird about that. When the Book of Mormon came forth, it sounded like everyday talk to them. And it's, you know, that's just the fact. But um, <clears throat> so here's a word stronghold. Again, they, they try to build, you know, build a stronghold and, and, and claim this, but stronghold exists in the Bible. Um, and what's interesting is this. I found this, the Methodist Conference of 1820. So these bullet points are excerpts from this. I found this on a website that is like a historical record of the Methodist Church. And notice it says this conference assembled on the first day of May. Uh, in the name of the Lord, the strongholds of prejudice and sin, with these fields of labor in the midst of us, round about us. <clears throat> so these three phrases all exist in this 1820s conference notes. Well, this is one of the allegations, all right? On the 10th day of the eighth month, round about the city, built their strongholds. These three phrases right here, which they claim are an allegation that the Book of Mormon plagiarized, are all something that was spoken in everyday language in the 1800s from a totally unrelated source. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can see it right here, roundabout us, strongholds, first day of May, it, it's all right there. So um, also 
you know, I, I guess I'm just pointing this out again with the with the Bible verses, strongholds round about the first day. All these things exist in the Bible. They existed in everyday language. Um, so here's the thing: the this points out that the book uses biblical phrasing, and so did the Nephites. All right, that's the important correlation. The plates of brass were their spiritual language. They were their their literary standard. Everything they <clears throat> they had survived because they had the brass plates. Well, from the brass plates, we end up getting the Bible. And so, if Hunt's using biblical language as the foundation of his work, and the Book of Mormon is of ancient Hebrews, why wouldn't they not be similar? All right, but. A sailing that Joseph Smith was influenced by the late war is merely a correlation, all right? And that's the difference. Correlation is not causation. So Hunt mimics the Bible, and the Book of Mormon are biblical people. That's the connection. Um, so he, he also points out a chiasm that's in the late war. And this is, I, I didn't fact check this. I, I'm, I assuming, didn't either. I'm yeah. assuming it exists, but he, he goes through, you know, 21 points of phrases that exist, you know, going in and out like a chiasm does. I, I won't go through this, but I want to point out that chiasms <clears throat> were something that people knew about. They're one of the few parallelisms that was known in, in the 1700s. Uh, a man named Loth was the only author known who ever pointed out anything about biblical chiasms. And I think he pointed out about three, three types of parallelisms. And, and he pointed out a chiasm. And this is one he points out. Jehovah said to Moses, be put to death the man which shall stone him with stones and the congregation without the camp. And they brought him, the congregation without the camp, stoned him with stones to death as Jehovah commanded Moses. So you see the chiastic structure, all right? And, and Loth points this out in the 1700s. That was not a mystery, okay? The, that chiasm exists. But this one's pretty easy to see. Um forgive my silly formatting here, but I didn't want to go off the side of the page. So <laughs> when you look at Noah's story in the King James, starting at uh, chapter six, going through chapter nine, you get a chiastic structure. And and this is, I think, about 19 points or something, wherever it's close to that, 16, 17, anyhow. And then you know, you get the story of Noah and his sons and the ark, and then you get the mountains being covered and the water prevailing. And then you <clears throat> center of the chiasm is God remembers Noah. And then th everything is repeated in reverse order. It's a really cool chiasm. And it's, like I said, it's something that was known. Um, I'm glad that the word tree author includes chiasm because it opens up opportunity for us to talk about what the book of Mormon does with it. Um, in, in many ways, even beyond this. So, so these were common things to the Bible. One of the things I would say is that, well, <laughs> I'm just going to go on. It, most of their comments are largely about the prose, and prose is just common language. It's not really a speech or a sermon or, or a letter. It's just discussing, like, for instance, King Benjamin's sermon to his people would not be considered prose. I mean, that's a sermon, that's a speech. But prose is a lot of what we get in the, the war chapters of the Book of Mormon, for instance, where it says, you know, people traveled and they went from one place to the next. And it's just describing the history. <clears throat> from what I can see, that's really the whole of their allegation. They find similarities in the history because these phrases were in common. And, and, and these phrases, a lot of them aren't even exact phrases. Um, there's another point I'm going to make about this, but I, I, they're, they're near phrases. And sometimes they'll go to a long stretch um, to, to make the point. And it's not obvious on their website. But, but this is important to me. I, I think this in a picture shows what's really going on. The brass plates were valid up to 600 BC. That's when Lehi was commanded to take them from Laban. So the Nephites' writings are based on the brass plates. <clears throat> Century later, uh, the, the Bible is written, and it's written in Hebrew, and then it's part of it's translated to Greek. Different books come in and out of it. We make this canon of Scripture. We give it a label of a Bible. It's similar <clears throat> to the brass plates, <clears throat> but Lehi mentions that the brass plates 
I'm sorry, Nephi mentions that the brass plates had much more writing than the Bible would. So who knows what that means? There, there are prophets, for instance, mentioned in the Book of Mormon that are not mentioned in the current canon of Scripture called the Bible, like Zenic and Zenus. Um, but from the Bible, then we get the late war. But the point is, the, the brass plates in the Bible had very similar content. So if you're writing source, the Nephite writing source was the Book of Mormon, Gilbert Hunt's writing source was the Bible. If, if those two are connected, you're going to see language similarities. So one of the other things too, I just want to point out where it's highlighted on the right here. You can see the author puts a little paragraph together and he, and he makes this connection between the Moravian town and Morianton. I mean, that's an interesting word choice. The, the, and it came to pass, okay, that occurs only 366 times in the Bible. The army, the army appears many, many times. Um, and then he says, Tecumseh and slew him, and he fell to the earth. Well, look on the, <clears throat> the highlighted part. Alma 50, in the LDS version, to Alma 62, with a whole lot of real estate in between. He's jumping way, way around to try to even find these to get a few words to match, okay? And this, this isn't the only place. I'm just, I'm just mentioning one. But there's a correlation, but it's not the cause. It, it's just not it. And, and there are some, I, I think this is kind of a little shady to do this, you know, because uh, this isn't the only four-word uh, connection that he has in this is, as it came to pass. I mean, slew him, those are two words, fell to the earth, you know, those are just two word little correlations. It's not a lot to get excited about. Um, I did see some time ago, I don't follow John DeLynn and his Mormon Stories website, but I've seen a few of his videos and he had some guests on, I think it was John DeLynn anyhow, that this they they discovered this late war website and boy, this was a real zinger for them. It's like, oh man, we've exposed the Book of Mormon as a fraud now. Look at all these things. Well, they just take the website as face value, but they, they don't dig in deep into any of it. So let's uh, just say let's just say Tiancum and Tecumseh are similar. If you do believe the you know, some of the remnants in this land are remnants from that culture, those <laughs> yes. Nephites, Lamanites, uh, certainly there may be some similar names passed down. So, um, you know, thank you for making that correlation to help maybe show the Book of Mormon is legit. Who knows? But, you, you know, that's you a really good either way, right? Right. Well, we, we can have fun with that. If if you look at Native American culture and the, the words from their culture, there are long lists of words in the Native American language still used today that correlate in their phonetic sounding very closely to, to Hebrew words. And I, I'm just going to throw that out there, but Tecumseh, yeah, Tiencum, all these words, if they survived in like a, a native American history, they could have very well been from, from this time period. Right. So if you wanted to prove, you know, if something came forth, well, Joseph Smith had a copy of uh, Hopi Indian, uh, you know, culture passed down and look how similar the names are. Now he borrowed from, from them and uh yeah or or we're looking at a legitimate correlation between the book of mormon and the ancestors that live there I, that's an interesting way to uh, i mean to think that that's a zinger and, and denounces the joseph as a fraud is is just surface level type of people don't want to think any deeper exactly and, and you summed it up mike that's that's what it is it becomes sur surface level stuff that will discourage people who don't really want to study or people who don't want to know the, the or people that want to, or people that set out to prove something. They just put this in their, their tool bag as another arrow to shoot at Joseph Smith, you know, being a, yeah. a, a fraud. And, you know, so it makes me sad when I consider how many people around us will fall at different things. I suppose it's like the parable of the sower and the seeds that fall on thorny ground or rocky soil or whatever it is that never get the chance to grow because mm -hmm. this is them. It's like the first little thing, <clears throat> it's kind of like, I know you've been talking to some people who have turned off, you know, any acceptance of the Book of Mormon, even though they had followed at one point because they decided 
the brass plates would have been too big for them to carry, you know, something like that. And, and that becomes the issue. And it's like, they can't see it any other way. And Joseph Smith's a fraud. The whole book of Mormon's a lie. You know, these are the types of things that catch people on the surface and, and they're not, they're not factual necessarily. They could be correlation, but, um, correlation is kind of like this. You could, you could make the, you could make the statement that, uh, more people who eat ice cream drowned. Um, and that's probably a fact, but it's for this reason, is it really that ice cream makes people drown? No, it has nothing to do with it. It's that you might eat ice cream on a hot day and on hot days, people go to the pool or people are by the river. Right. And, and therefore it's the causation that, you know, right. or the correlation of being near water when it's warm out and ice cream is something that people do when it's warm out. Right. But to yeah. say that ice cream causes drowning isn't there, but that's the incorrect right. conclusion you can draw. Right. right. Chunky Bunky is their favorite flavor. So, you know, when you're 400 <laughs> pounds and you eat it every night for dinner, you may sink right to the bottom when you fall over. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but that's kind of a loose way of drawing the point of this. There is a correlation, but it's not the cause. So, there have been many accusations of plagiarism. I'm not going to get into the view of the Hebrews. Ethan Smith wrote this in 1825, right before the Book of Mormon came out. For a long time, it was <clears throat> the target. You know, oh, Joseph Smith copied from this. I got on ChatGPT and I uh, on OpenAI.com, and it's interesting because it shifts its bias after a while. And at first, it was bias saying the Book of Mormon was plagiarized. And I was kind of conversing with it and it's just a computer program, but it responds. And I said, well, how is it biased? And then it's just listing things that it finds on the internet. It doesn't really know anything, but it was said, well, the correlation that the view of the Hebrews, you know, came out and that the, the storyline follows the view of the Hebrews. And I said, <clears throat> so I had been in parallel searching the book of Mormon for on chat GBT to find, um, Hebrew parallelisms and just Hebrewisms in general. And it finds tons of them, lots of them. And I said, I asked chat GPT. So if Joseph Smith plagiarized from the view of the Hebrews, are there parallelisms or Hebrew parallelisms in this book called the view of the Hebrews? And it responds, it says, I can't find any parallelisms. And, and then I said, so how is it if Joseph Smith plagiarized from the view of the Hebrews that the book of Mormon contains thousands of Hebrewisms and Hebrew parallelisms and, and that from a source that has none. And it finally responds and says the, the book of Mormon is a book of Hebrew authenticity. I mean, it's like it reversed its, its position on it because, you know, again, how do you get that? And if people aren't familiar with Hebrew parallelisms, we're going to get into this. This is really the point of sharing today. The Solomon Spalding manuscript, that was another thing. You know, people latch on to these things. Some people hold on to them and they never ask any more questions. But um, I, I just want to point this out that this isn't new, but <clears throat> we're taking a little time to debunk this other one. But they're always kind of the same conclusion. You know, there's something on the surface that looks really juicy. And then some people get tripped up by it. But all these critics, this is my question to them. Is that all you've got? Is, is that really all you've got? You know, especially this late war. Um, what I'd like to do is get in to some questions that cannot be answered by any mudslinger or Hebrew scholar even. And that is how did so many Hebrewisms get in the Book of Mormon? And we're not just talking about, and it came to pass. Um, so before we do this, I, this is a little rabbit trail, but not really. I, I want to generalize and, and point out something you can read any number of things about Joseph Smith and, and you can use those to put together as a body of work and start to train your mind that mm, this is, there's too many things here, too many things to wade through. I'm just, I'm going to throw it all out or I just, I can't believe uh, in the book of Mormon. And I want to just say why I don't think that's a good idea. Number one, if you believe the book of Mormon is what it says it is about itself, it's the number one most correct, authentic book that gives us an eye into eternity and into our creator that hasn't been passed through hundreds of hands and hundreds of pens through the years and recorded and re-recorded. If you believe what the Book of Mormon claims about itself, it is a 
record of writing that comes from the Holy Ghost that comes directly from the mouths of angels to men who inscribe it on metal and then put that metal in the ground, not to be touched by men again for, you know, thousands of years or hundreds of years from the original record to come forth and to be translated, not by the whim of man, but by an instrument created of God for just that thing to take language and put it into another language so that, that those people then have the correct understanding by the power of God. God's choosing the words. Joseph's recording the words. And we now have an eye by the creator of the universe revealing his knowledge to us through these words that have been almost directly from heaven. We don't have any other body of work. Now, whether you think that's real or not is up to you. But I hear claims sometimes like, you know, well, you know, I couldn't find anything wrong in the book, so it's not really harmful. But, um, you know, I don't know if I buy it. I don't have room for that type of uh, mediocrity when it comes to the Book of Mormon. It's not just there's nothing harmful in it. It's more on the positive side of the spectrum. There's words of life in it. There's words of knowledge that unlocks our understanding into our creator and our plan, his plan for us, for salvation. It's not something to just be lukewarm about. You either take this gift for what it says it is and allow it to change your heart and bring you into relation with the Holy Spirit, God that created us, or, or, there's, or you write it off as a fraud. But many of the things you, you want to use about Joseph Smith to write the book off, um, just realize what you're writing off. It, it, it's a heavy thing to, to set aside and not have it be a part of your life. We look at Joseph Smith and, and say, oh, he was a treasure digger or he had a seer stone. And, you know, they use that. And there's revelations about divining rod and, you know, this folk magic. And, and my response to that is, so what? That's you're, you're taking your judgments of a different culture and a different period and, and trying to make someone's character be, you know, nefarious. Like he's involved in the occult. And, well, you know what? Maybe those things were true, but everyone was doing it at the time. You know, divining rods to find to find water when there was no radar and things we have today, you know, ground locating sources was totally normal at the time. And so you, you know, imagine Joseph Smith and his cohorts looking at our day and looking at, like, say, essential oils, how you could put a scent in the air and smell it and somehow it heals your anxiety or your depression or you, you rub something on your feet and it gets rid of your headache. You know, it's a. Uh, they would look at that like magic or, you know, how can you plug something into the wall and put a scent into the air and have it heal me physically right. to us? That's, you know, something that church members take part of people sell it. It's normal. But at that time period, this would be like snake oil or magic, you know, it could be. And so, and I'm not putting any of that down. If that's your jam, that's, that's great. But I'm just saying cultures change and, What's weird for us was normal for them, and what's normal for us would, would be completely weird for them. So coming yes. back onto the main topic, as we look at the Hebrewisms and the parallelisms and how deeply they go, think about how a man could fraudulently put all of these things without a computer into a, a body of work with no notes or paper or anything laid out, but just one word after the other. I say it's an impossibility without it's, the power of God. It's totally impossible. And and these are the things that the the mudslingers they never touch. They can't get into. They'll <clears throat> they'll bring up something like, <clears throat> well, horses, you know, the Book of Mormon claims they're here, but we know this they weren't here until after the Spaniards. You know, they'll make some claim like that, which that itself is factually incorrect, but I'm not going there. Um I I just think these things are, are always there to kind of trip us up. Uh, one by one, we kind of cross them off the list. You know, the uninformed don't always know that they're crossed off the list. And I don't know that it really matters to God for the reasons that you just said. Here, we've been given this book, which is unbelievably holy, written by spiritual masterminds. These men were brilliant. They, they were brilliant what they do with the words, once you start to see, you know, how it derived from the Hebrew, it's mind boggling to me how, how it could have been written with such clarity and complexity at the same time. Um, 
I also think this, <clears throat> I think what the Book of Commandments said about Joseph Smith was absolutely true, that to translate the book was his only gift. That's what the language said. That was changed in the Doctrine and Covenants after 1835 to say, this will be one of your many gifts, and you'll have you know other gifts after this work is complete. If we take that on face value, it says, suggests to me that Joseph Smith was, for whatever reason, good guy, picked out of a crowd of many. God said, you'll do. You know, you don't know much. You're the unlearned man, actually, that Isaiah speaks of, that the Book of Mormon also talks about. The unlearned man, third or fourth grade education at the time. And I know his language improved, but at the time, Emma even said, you know, he couldn't put two words together in a sentence. He couldn't write a letter, um, you know, at the time the Book of Mormon came forth. God used someone who couldn't have brought any of this to the table himself, right? Um, so, these the deeper part of the Book of Mormon is what I like to touch and, and show how the late war, the view of the Hebrews, Spalding manuscript, they don't come anywhere close to the heart of the Book of Mormon. And so um, I've got a few books. <coughs> These are some of them. Uh, Adele Berlin has this dynamics of biblical parallelism, classical Hebrew poetry, the idea of biblical poetry, you know, Hebrew Bibles, uh, Berlin, Watson, Alter, Kugel, they're all authors who did most of their work in the 1980s and 1990s, and I believe all of them are still alive to this day. But the point is that in the days of the 1820s, in, when the Book of Mormon was being translated, none of these books were available. Hebrew wasn't really understood that well. It was really a dead language at that point in time. And so <clears throat> when we get into what these people say, uh, it, it opens up new understanding on what the Book of Mormon is telling us. This um, uh, is a quote, and, and I'm, this is going to be a little bit of a lecture for a while. I apologize, but um, this is from uh, Wilfred Watson's book where he talks about parallelism, and he says parallelism is universally recognized as the characteristic feature of biblical Hebrew poetry. Parallelism is different than American English poetry where a word will rhyme. I've, I've used this example, hickory dickory dock, the mouse ran up the clock. You know, we have rhyming words. In Hebrew parallelism, the ideas rhyme. And they, they may also have some phonetic similarity if you were speaking in the Hebrew, but <clears throat> it's, it's a deeper meaning. It's a deeper level that the ideas rhyme or oppose or are built on each other to share uh, advanced meaning. And so, <clears throat> what I'd like to do is speak to some of the Hebrew poetry just as it exists out of all these books and, and then show how it works in the Book of Mormon and then show how complex it can be in the Book of Mormon. Things that no one has really even pointed out to at much extent until just the last few years. So these are some of the lists, uh, a list of some of the names. This is not an exhaustive list. We get names like cognate accusative, anadiplosis, chiasm, epiphora, cataphora, paranomasia, plural amplification, ellipsis, Janus parallelism, synthetic, antithetical, emblematic parallelisms, the AB and ABC, rhetorical questions, gender matched parallelisms and pronouns, staircase parallelism. These are a few. And I'm not going to go into any depth on these, but I just want to give you some examples of what we're talking about with this from the Bible and the Book of Mormon, and then show how the Book of Mormon takes these well beyond just an academic level. Um, so, hey, Corey, that's I, I wanted to just restate what you just said. These are recent discoveries, recent within you know a debt, you know century after Joseph Smith, well after that, and and maybe just real quickly remind our readers why, why, you know, Hebrew was lost and what was the language that was used to write the book of Mormon and why was it, you know, part parallel? Um, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. So, um, well, your first question, why was it lost? Um, the Jews were diminished and scattered. And even when they were at their peak, they weren't very large. You know, every, everyone who spoke Hebrew lived in Israel. Israel was, beaten and battered down and they laid siege. The people were killed and scattered, drug off into Babylon. A few returned. And these people after Jesus crucifixion <clears throat> were scattered to the world. So 
you take a country and you divide it up and its language just goes to all these other pockets of the world. Well, people start speaking the language of, of the world they live in. Um, and even the Bible at, at that time was, was started to be moved into Greek, right? Even, even when that, the apostles, yeah. 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 It's kind of like, you know, if, if Hebrew was like Hawaiian, well, if you wanted to get people to read it, you had to put it in a, like a language like English. So Greek was the, the language of the philosophers. Hebrew was the language of the, the podunks, you know, this is the country hicks who spoke Hebrew. That's what was the opinion anyhow. And those are my words. But, but this, the language was diminished because the people were diminished. Uh, most Hebrew became, in, if you were in Europe, <clears throat> became Yiddish or some derivation of it, which was a lot of um, uh, Hebrews ended up in, in the German area. And that's where Yiddish sort of evolved. Um, the Ashkenazi Jews came from there. Uh, and, and there were other kind of derivations of it. If you go to Brooklyn today, the people there, while they can read Hebrew to some extent, they're speaking Yiddish because that was the language of their homeland. And they're two different languages. Uh, it's, it's sort of like German combined with Hebrew. So uh, this, and so um, that was, that was kind of how it evolved. Mormon, just just speak real quick to re, this is for people that haven't seen some of your other videos that are more in depth but reformed egyptian just speak to that oh yeah 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 so that was the other part of your, your point in in first nephi one and it's explained later a, a little bit by mormon but nephi states that he's writing in the after the manner of the jews in the language of the egyptians hebrew evolved from the Egyptian hieroglyphs. And when Moses departed with the people, you know, the, the hieroglyphs were over like uh, 700 or so different shapes and symbols, almost like Chinese is with so many different symbols. Well, this Hebrew culture kept about 22 of those symbols and they formed a language, but it was written in symbols. And I don't have any slides to this right now, but it was written in symbols that were based on Egyptian hieroglyphs. They were very compact. Um, <clears throat> the Hebrew language really didn't evolve until after the Babylonian uh, time period, which was right after Lehi left Jerusalem, to where that block language emerged. So, and it's anachronistically correct that the language being used before all those people got drug into Babylon, when Lehi leaves Jerusalem, was this kind of an, an Egyptian script. That's what was still being used. And so that is also the record <clears throat> of the brass plates. And so they're maintaining the language of their day at an exact point in time when they leave the culture. And so the, the thinking, though, of the Hebrews was all these parallelisms. It's very, very complex. These people were, <laughs> they weren't just dusty hicks, you know, uh, who lived on the prairie. They were deep, thoughtful men, and, and their language reflects it. They struggle later, and Mormon and Moroni kind of touch on this, that they said, we're powerful in speaking, and yet it's awkward for us to write this language. And they knew the power of God, and it was limited by the fact that they just had these little tiny characters to maintain the record that they were using. They said, our language has changed since then, our, our you know, probably a written and a formal uh, speaking language. But <clears throat> these people who wrote the book maintained it in this Egyptian script. And that is what actually, we, we say it was written in Hebrew. It was the thinking of the Hebrews, but it was the literally the inscriptions of the Egyptians that it was written in. So Thank you. I appreciate it. Sorry to, to derail you, but... Yeah, no, no, no. It's all good. Um, but that's, that's important to understand. So when we say Hebrew, it wasn't really the Hebrew writing style, <clears throat> but it was the Hebrew thought process. And that's what we're going to see here. So... No one in the 1800s was ever mentioning parallelisms. You can search church history or times and seasons or whatever. You're never going to hear about Hebrew parallelisms. <clears throat> you know, I get asked time to, from time to time, well, what do you think about, you know, X book in church history, you know, and, and like lectures in faith. And that's been one that people ask, well, what do you think about that? And I'm like, all I want to know is why did they discard the Book of Mormon so quickly? Why weren't they having lectures in the Book of Mormon? You know, it's like, they had the Book of Mormon, they translate it, then all of a sudden they're they're trying to explain everything from the Bible. And it's like, you've been given this perfect gift. God, to my knowledge, never did for any group of people, 
what he did for us by giving us this record. It's, it's incredible that God would have been so thoughtful, I guess to use a word, to say, you know, you, you Gentiles have been struggling because this Bible came out of the apostles and it was changed, you know, after their time. I'm going to give you a fresh copy of how I think and how I work with people. And here we get everything from, you know, God nourishing his people in the wilderness to teaching them that their hearts have to change to getting examples of their hearts that change. We get, we see examples of what happens when your heart doesn't change. We see how that can work into willful rebellion. We see covenants and promises made, you know, over this over a thousand year time period, we see incredible things that all come to us from this gift. Something that, you know, the Bible has some parallels in that, but nothing so clear and complete. You have Jesus's very own words given a very succinct summary of what his doctrine is and what his uh, gospel is. And then with the instructions, don't add anything to this until I return. This is it. And so uh, and so now we have that knowledge. And the first thing man did was start adding to it. You know exactly what Jesus told him not to do. Yeah. You know, I got put on the spot yesterday and I'll, I'll just share a little quick story from Sunday school. I was substitute teaching and there was someone there who I've known from years past and he's kind of outspoken and he speaks some Hebrew, but nevertheless, he made a statement. He said, well, I heard you don't believe in the book of Mormon or the doctrine and covenants. And I never really got to respond to that, but I'm just going to say that. I heard. <laughs> I heard. Oh, you did? <laughs> oh, no, no, I heard. Uh, it's just, that's funny. I heard like, where did, where did you hear that? Oh from? yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, um, I never really got to respond, but I'll say this. I mean, I believe in the Doctrine and Covenants in as much as it agrees with the Book of Mormon, but where it departs from the Book of Mormon, that's where I have an issue. And it unfortunately departs in some serious areas, which I is another conversation. I'm just going to piggyback on that. We, we, we got accused of upholding the Book of Commandments over the Doctrine and Covenants, you know, throwing out the Doctrine and Covenants and using the Book of Commandments. I don't think I've ever said that i don't own a copy of the book of commandments other than what i can get digitally online uh it doesn't matter to me what you call it it's exactly what you said if there's revelations in both books that agree with what we have uh fine if there's things that are suspect and go against the gospel which i think there's those things there too then i i don't uphold that and i don't care what book you call it but i don't take one over the other a matter of fact, most of the most of the revelations are the same, except for the first 15, 16 anyway. So it's not like there's a huge difference, but the differences that are there when you just look at the original revelations are are huge. So it's, it's again, does it agree with the Book of Mormon or not? That's the standard, not uh, the label and taking one after the other. Yeah. And unfortunately, what seems to have happened is since the 1800s, <clears throat> we changed Joseph Smith from you know, the person who was given the task of translating the Book of Mormon to making him, you know, prophet, seer, revelator, and, and the almost president of the United States. I think I think a lot of things were put upon him that weren't really his calling. You know, we expected him to be able to now translate the Bible and give us a fresh, clean copy of the Bible. You know, we've looked at that before, and we see how Joseph obviously leaned on people like Adam Clark for inspiration. Things we thought were unique to the Restoration, turns out they were written in other books. Um, now it sounds like I'm going back on what I've, I've stated, but it's it's a little bit different when you can read a verse or two that was changed specifically in the, the inspired version, and it's exactly as someone's commentary. You know, that's that's a little bit different because we're not talking about Hebrewisms here; we're just talking about borrowing English language. And so, nevertheless, I don't want to get too deep in that. But but here's the thing: the Book of Mormon is the premier book, and, and I think we've held on to it too loosely. Uh, so Elizabeth, no one in the 1800s was ever talking about parallelism. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I just said that's important because there's there'll be some things coming out where uh, we'll be attacked for repet- repetitively stating that the Book of Mormon is the standard. And my response to that is I've got a whole list of scriptures in the back of my Book of Mormon of what it says about itself. So uh, definitely... I think Dick Bauman's experience from 40 years ago where he said there's a day of choosing those that will choose to believe the gospel in the Book of Mormon and those that won't, that is the great separation in these last days as we've chosen to believe a new gospel and not the gospel in the Book of Mormon. Exactly. Uh, you know, and I, I ran into that again yesterday. It was the class, I don't try to bring contention, but it seems that, you know, if you just mention a, a scripture from the Book of Mormon that God the Father took on flesh, 
it creates contention and, and people don't see it that way. And, and so, you know, it was almost beat up the teacher day in class and I, I just kind of smile at it, but it's, um, crazy. We belong to a church that so quickly removed that, that the biggest, uh, frustration and problems people have is that we uh, teach out of the book of Mormon and uphold it, uh, perhaps above other scripture, which is exactly what the book of Mormon says about itself is what we should do. So exactly, exactly. And it's like, you know, I'm not trying to be disloyal to our heritage or our people. I'm just saying, Hey, take a closer look at this and, and don't just, you know, assume these things that came in the, in the last days in the recent days, Trump what's in the book of Mormon. Cause it's not designed to be that way. So anyhow, it's a, the book of Mormon, you know, no one ever talked about these parallelisms in Joseph Smith's day. He doesn't mention it, nothing in writing. Um, but it's a treasure trove of, of Hebrewisms and parallelisms. So um, there's another thing I'll, I'll mention this, that our copies of the Book of Mormon have English punctuation, which is oftentimes incorrect. That's to me almost a testimony, the fact that it was something the people who it was given to, they never understood. If, <clears throat> if they had with a notion to, to write a book and they, they had somehow found examples of Hebrew parallelisms, they would have formatted the book to show the parallelisms. You know, it's like, hey, we want to put this in the best light, but they couldn't even do that. The English punctuation gets parallelisms often incorrect. And, and this has frustrated me from time to time um, where I'd, I'd like to present a copy that puts some of the parallelisms in order so you can visually see them a little better. The, the Restored Covenant Edition starts, but but it's it misses it because it's still using Oliver Cowdery's you know, chapter and verse and punctuation, which he didn't understand Hebrew either. So he's doing it to the best of his knowledge as an Englishman, you know, or as someone who speaks English. And yet, if you were speaking Hebrew, you wouldn't write it the way it's written, even in English. So anyhow, that's just another testimony to me that Joseph Smith and none of these guys knew what they had. They, they didn't understand it. If and the first it a differently, the original book of Mormon doesn't printing does has chapters, but not uh, verses. Just, right. Right. Just, just more like paragraphs. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then it gets divided later. I think it would have been better almost to leave it in long paragraphs. But nevertheless, that's another conversation. I know. Um, so now we got to throw up two, <laughs> two yeah. references most of the time for the LDS and RLDS because the paginations uh, at one time were the same now are, are uh, quite different. So, but yeah. Yeah. Um, so I want to touch on some of these, not all of them from that list, but I, I just want to mention in a sentence or two, what each of these are, it'll go kind of quickly and then we'll bring it together in the, in the book of Mormon. Uh, emblematic parallelism and emblematic parallelism is something that explains sometimes they'll use the the term in other words and i'm going to kind of skip over the bible examples here and just excuse me get right to the book of mormon here's here's one an emblematic parallelism from the book of mormon even the very god of israel did men trample under their feet i say trample under their feet but i would speak in other words they do set him at naught and hearken not to the voice of his counsels this is an emblematic parallelism explaining the term trample under their feet. You can go to someone like Jeff Benner, and he explains trampling under your feet is to set aside the counsels of God. It, I mean, it's an exact definition of the word, and it's done in the emblematic format. And it's something that a recent scholar today has corroborated the truth. You don't get this in the Bible. You, you, you'll, you'll read trample under your feet, but you never get this explanation. It's done beautifully in the Book of Mormon. Um, the term cognate accusative, I've dreamed a dream. It means when there's a noun and a verb of the same word, uh, to dream is a verb, but to dream a dream, the, the second dream is a noun. So, uh, or you vow a vow. If a man vow a vow unto the Lord, you know, you're, you're vowing to make a promise, but it's a noun and a verb of the same called cognate accusative by the linguist. There's tons of them in the Book of Mormon. Mormon says, I began to be learned somewhat after the manner of the learning of my people, right? So there's a verb and a noun form of the word learn, right? Um, there are lots of them. And we're going to touch on these more in a more complex fashion here in a minute. I'm just throwing these out first to see. <clears throat> I hope I'm not going too fast. Again, I just want to touch these uh, first. 
Anadiplosis, uh, it's a Greek word to mean doubling or repetition. You'll see this when the last word of a phrase is the same in the beginning of the next phrase. So a phrase will end with a statement, repeats that statement in the beginning of the next phrase. It's it's very common in writing. Uh, it's not just limited to the Bible, uh, but you'll see Peter making this statement, uh, make every effort to support your faith with goodness and goodness with knowledge. And I've tried to format this so you can see <clears throat> knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance to godliness, mutual affection with love. You see how this progresses through. Well, the, the Book of Mormon has beautiful anadiplosis. <clears throat> this is just one example, but I'll show others in a little bit. Um, why do you ponder these things in your heart? After you've received the Holy Ghost, you can speak with the tongue of angels. So, And how could you speak with the tongue of angels, say, or by the Holy Ghost? That in itself is a chiasm. But then it says, the, speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. They speak the words of Christ. I say, feast on the words of Christ, for the words of Christ will tell you all things you should do. So you, you see a little bit of the anadiplosis here. This isn't maybe even the best example, but there are better ones coming up. Um, a staircase parallelism is a little bit like anadiplosis, but its point isn't to just share. It shares with sort of like it, it builds to a point or it makes a climax in the end of the comments. I, I love this one from 1 Nephi 3. It, in the LDS, it's 1 Nephi 10, 8. And much spake my father concerning this thing. And my father saith that he should baptize in Bethabara beyond Jordan. And he also spake that he should baptize with water. You'll start to see the progression underlined. First it's baptizing, then it's baptizing with water. Yea, even that he should baptize the Messiah with water. So it's building. <clears throat> and then the conclusion, after he had baptized the Messiah with water, so, so then we get the anadiplosis connection here, he should behold and bear record that he had, and here's the summary, he had baptized the Lamb of God, which would take away the sin of the world, which should take away the sin of the world. So, there's there's ever there points we can make about this too. Just the the repetition of should baptize, that's a parallelism in itself. But but a staircase parallelism, it's a common thing in the Book of Mormon, not so common in the Bible. Um you'll get repetition at the beginning or the end. Um, you know, like how we just saw should baptize, should baptize, should baptize here. Behold, at his voice doth the hills and mountains tremble and quake. By the power of his voice, they are broken up and become smooth like a valley. By the power of his voice, doth the whole earth quake. You know, we get this repetition at the beginning of the phrase. And then it says, and if you say, if move, and it is moved. And if you say to the earth, go back, it is done. We get parallelisms, and they're blended together. We have repetition in the beginning. We have repetition in the end. And these are all cogent thoughts. You know, they're, they're all cohesive. The, the doctrine that's presented here is beautiful. It's clear. You you can be eight years old and read this and understand it. You don't have to understand Hebrew. Um, this is one of the arguments, I guess, that came up in Sunday school yesterday. Is I, I pointed out something from Hebrew language, and someone tried to correct it and say, "Oh, well, that's not correct because in Hebrew it's actually this." Well, they were actually incorrect, but I didn't I didn't take time to rebut that in class. Tried to be diplomatic, but here's the point. You don't have to understand Hebrew to understand the message of the Book of Mormon. And that's the point, that it's given in clarity. All we have to do is read it and believe it. The problem is our thoughts have been diluted. We've been persuaded in other directions by men who were not honest, uh, largely, who had other motives. And, and so this is why we have to come back to this book. We have to see what it originally said and what was given to us and for us. That's the, I would say, magic bill, but the that's one of the most interesting things to me is that in the Book of Mormon, there will be these, uh, you know, these visual writing of the Hebrew style, and as it's doing that, it's also explaining in English what the meaning of those are. You know, one of those examples, most easy, or one that's in my brain all the time is mercy, you know, where we discovered mercy was actually... Uh, the strictest meaning would be to circle about it with your arms or to wrap with arms of safety. And so you can read a, a poetic structure in the Book of Mormon using the word mercy, but within th that word or whatever that Hebrew word was, you're giving the actual definition in it. And we can see those in the Book of Mormon where it says, you know, and they were encircled about with their arms of safety or their arms of love or 
arms of protection, I'm paraphrasing, but you're putting the definition of the word as a scripture at the same time, using that same word that was an unknown definition at the time. So if Joseph was looking at this Hebrew word, he wouldn't know that the meaning of that word was to encircle a bar in arms of safety. And yet that was the translation that came out from that word. So exactly. that's a huge to me. Um, and there's several of those. I know you've got them on your website, but those are just fascinating to me. I've, I've actually got some of those in the PowerPoint. I, I think you just, it's a good lead into it. Oh, awesome. Up. Oh, it's and good. by the way, so we're at an hour and I know you said this would be a, a two-parter. Let me know where you find a good place to stop let's, and we'll pick up for next time. Let's, let's stop right here, Mike, and then we'll, we'll pick up okay. here next time. Okay. So more to come people about uh, just, if you really want to solidify, you know, help solidify your faith in something that is this awesome gift from God and not just sit it on a shelf as a neutral book, but allow yourself and your spirit to interact with the Holy Spirit as you read these words and see how that changes your heart and how, I don't know. I, I told my buddy yesterday, if there's any truth in this world, it's the truth of the spirit that I have interacted with reading the book. It's not that the book's true or genuine. I'm not trying to prove that to people other than the fact that the words have power. And um, as I read the Book of Mormon, it's the spirit that interacts with me, my mind, my heart, those places that we can't even put into words, our soul maybe, that it's just a place of... I don't want to be overly dramatic, but at times I've just felt my inner man commingling with heaven in eternity. And those are the most real times in my life where I want to stay in that spirit. Nothing else in this world compares to it. Nothing else comes close to mattering. Um, when I lost my first wife through divorce, those moments spent in the Book of Mormon was the only that spirit was the only comfort I had mm. and I would read for hours and it was a safe place. You know, it's, it sounds like I'm oversimplifying, but it was like climbing into the lap of, of my Lord and just being held and comforted. And I can't explain that, uh, in this physical world, it's something beyond that. Mm. So we'll come back and, uh, have more, hopefully more good discussion. I know we will on the book yeah, of Mormon and why it's uh, why Joseph could not have plagiarized anything. Stay tuned for part two because we're, we're just getting started in this and it's, it's going to be good. Thank Cora, you. Cora, I had a note this. So uh, people are missing your, uh, your exit uh, uh, language that you usually send us off with. So why don't you just re remind all our new listeners what we're doing in this life and why we should be kind to one another. Be kind because we're all just walking each other home. All right. Amen. Until next time. God bless.